Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the PD Podcast, hosted by myself, Pranay Badev, a consultant pediatric orthopedic surgeon from the UK. The greatest part of having a podcast platform is the amazing guests who I end up meeting sporadically at meetings, and that has to be said for Professor Stefano Bini, who I met in Bern earlier this year. He's a professor at UCSF of orthopedic surgery, in addition to being the chief technology officer and the founder of DOCSF, which stands for the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco. The vision of this is to create a movement that delivers digital health at lower cost, higher quality and better access by focusing on technology within musculoskeletal care. He has had a podcast of his own for the last few years and over the COVID era delivered one of the largest internationally attended uh, virtual conferences uh, looking at COVID-19, the digital orthopedic recovery. His aim is to form an alliance with innovators and healthcare leaders to implement digital health solutions around the world. And in this interview, we talk about his role as a chief technology officer, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning and deep learning and what these mean the potential applications within the paediatric orthopedic fields, including the use of sensors and telehealth, the emerging role of technology in training trainees using augmented reality and virtual reality, and its potential role in helping connecting families with rare diseases. I will attach his uh, podcast website and the keynote uh, lectures he delivered earlier this year in Bern to our show notes, so please check this out. And I hope you'll continue to join us on the first and third Sunday of each month where we continue to release episodes with leaders from around the field of not only paediatric orthopedics, but emerging technologies uh, like this guest here. I hope you'll continue to follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And let's get into it. Um, So, Dr. Beanie, tell me, what is your role as Chief Technology Officer? Great question. Well, first of all, thanks for including me on your podcast. It's an honor to be here. Wish you the best of luck with its growth. And um, I think it's awesome that you're doing this. So great. Good job with that. Uh, secondly, um, the, chief, the role of Chief Technology Officer at the University of California, San Francisco is in the Department of Orthopedics. So it's very, very specific to my role is within my department. I also am part of the Center of Digital Health Innovation for University, which is the group that oversees the digitization of the healthcare system there. But my role that we just talked about is specifically designed to help digitize the patient experience as interface with our department. And as I presented here at the uh, HIP Symposium here in Bern, the way to think about it is, what pain points do we have in, the where, in, the, in our care delivery model that could be improved, optimized, or otherwise changed through the use of digital technologies rather than analog tools. When you think about technology in general, there are two ways to look at it. One is there's the biotechnology stuff. So you're talking about CRISPR, gene editing, uh, 3D cellular printing, all very exciting. And that is going to impact the care we deliver. The area I'm focused on is on what digital tools can you use to alter and impact the way we deliver care. 
you think about the way we deliver care today, fundamentally it's two ways. Either you come to the clinic or you come to the hospital. It's a one-on-one, -on -one, real-time, synchronous experience, which is extremely complex to orchestrate. Just the patient having to take a day off to come to the office to sit in traffic or the tube to get in to see you, sit in the office again, see you, then have to go to pharmacy to be then seen again, then a wait list and finally get home is a huge cost to the patient. On the other side, you need staff, rooms, your own time has to be scheduled to go see that patient. To be there at the same moment is very complex. So there are every, very, a number of elements in that whole experience that could be optimized. Everything from the scheduling, why are we scheduling people over the phone, very antiquated technology. Can we do this asynchronously online at the patient's convenience so they can pick their own appointment types that matches their schedule? Is there a way to uh, even automate billing? We didn't talk about that yesterday, but there's software that can review the chart note Another thing I didn't talk about yesterday is the fact that we've deployed a um, Robin, which is a software which is essentially a virtual scribe, sits in the room, listens to a natural conversation, transcribes it, creates a note from it, puts it into medical record, et cetera, et cetera. These are all pain points for us. Entering data into the electronic health record manually is a pain point. Scheduling patients, calling them, finding them, leaving a message, waiting for them to call back is all a pain point. Etc. So those are the areas where digital technologies as applied to all of healthcare, if taken into the space of orthopedics, suddenly become technologies that become digital orthopedic technologies. And it is my role in the department to identify the pain points we need to solve. Identify amongst many options the software platform that's best suited to our department's needs obviously figure out the return investment. If I do this investment of paying for the service, what optimization and how can I monetize that optimization will I get in return? And as an aside, that could be improved quality of service. I may have a value proposition just by saying I can do a better job with this thing. It may be that you value it by saying, I will be able to see more patients, which generate income. Or I will be able to so optimize the workflow that I need fewer staff to manage it. Not that I'm going to fire anybody, but then I can grow without hiring more people. Right? Those are three ways to think about it. So now you've gotten past the idea of how do I pay for it, what's the right thing, and you've also reframed the question away from, oh, look at this good new technology, how am I going to use it? You, that's not the way to approach this. What problem do I have? Make sure everybody agrees it's a problem. Make sure it's a defined problem that's solvable. And then you start looking for the solution to deploy. The next step, then, is going to be the hard part, which is to socialize it. One of the hardest biggest challenges you have around digital innovation isn't so much the first part we just talked about, find the problem, solving it. Is when you bring it into an existing practice, an existing practice model, you are going to come up against the standard practice. And usually that standard practice is shared across society. 
so it's considered the best practice. And you come in and saying, no, it's not. We can do better. It's a, it's a hard sell. And so you have to find a few early supporters, create a group that are willing to move forward. There's lots of sociological studies about what kind of people are more likely to be open to this sort of thing. You can't force people who just don't like change to change quickly. You leave them behind, they'll come back later. And you find the right people, you move the ball forward, prove your concept, and others will follow. I mean, this is amazing. You work in an institution where obviously you have taken upon this role, and you also work at a national level and with lots of startups and things like that. Our current health secretary, uh, secretary Matt Hancock, is very pro on making, uh, utilizing innovation, although we don't even have a universal uh, PAC system, or even a, most hospitals don't have a, a reasonable electronic uh, medical health record. Um, Talking about electronic records, that has also been a very a big pain point for clinicians as well, actually having the health record, because it makes them constantly in touch with uh, what's going on in the hospital, and, and it has been linked to things like physician burnout. What are your thoughts on that? Good luck finding a single professional in the healthcare space that would ever go back to paper. They can complain about the electronic record. They'll never go back to paper when they can't find charts, they can't find reports, they can't look up, they can't find the x-ray because it was put up in a x-ray box by a junior resident who completely forgot about it, moved it over, put in the wrong folder. When they, when they, I, you, you're too young to remember those days, but it was a disaster. Mm -hmm. People come into hospitals and there's no, we had nothing to work in. Mm -hmm. um, so yes and, yes, it, could we have done a better job deploying a technology and nobody had a clue what it was? You know, when you don't know what you're doing, not because you're incompetent, but because it's never been done before. We've never had an electronic health record system anywhere. And when, when, when I helped deploy it at Kaiser Permanente when I was back in the day, and we were one of the big first big companies to pick up Epic, and, and uh, the company was divided into two, Northern California and Southern California. Each of them deployed Epic in a very different way. And not to say that one was better than the other, one went hospital by hospital, they all went all the way across everybody at the same time. Each had about 20 15 to 20 hospitals. Um, but at the end, everybody's on the same electronic record. Um, but you made, an, you made a statement at the very beginning of what you say, which was had to do with um, the, the, the deployment of digital technology being tied to electronic health record. That, that is not true. There's a lot you can do. In fact, in some cases, you can move a lot quicker if you don't worry about the electronic health record. Not, everybody, not everything needs to be tied to the EHR in order to be functional. And just so we understand where this is going long term, the EHRs are going to wind up being nothing but large data sets. They'll, they'll serve as a normative, the truth of the record, but I don't expect them to be the access point for very long. Uh, partly because of the way um, they were engineered to begin with, partly because the engineering of some of these is so archaic. I don't know if you're familiar with Epic, but people, engineers who work with Epic have to be taught a language, a programming language that no longer is used net normally, because it's so old. And there'll be middleware that sits on top of it, it'll access the data for us, and then we'll have a much more modern interface. So. I wouldn't tie the idea that you have to move forward with digital health. So mm, let's just say you wanted to do a telehealth, telehealth platform. You don't need to hook it up to the electronic record to answer patient questions about how to, follow, how to manage the uh, uh, 
Hipspiker cast. Mm. Provide that information otherwise. There are some phrases that some of our audience may not really understand, and I think you, were, you can very succinctly provide that. Uh, tell me what is your understanding of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning? Artificial intelligence is, is nothing more than, than the ability of a computer to take a large data set, identify patterns within that data set, and then um, provide them to whoever's using it as, uh, in such a way that they can make, take meaning out of that data. So the problem with large, very large data set, tens of millions of data points uh, over large populations, is very hard for us as, as humans to understand what, where the noise is and where the patterns are. And that's what artificial intelligence does very well. And then when applied, uh, to large data sets and it gives us that sort of insight into what patterns might exist, that knowledge allows you to act on that data set. But it's important to understand a couple of things about what you can get out of artificial intelligence. One is that um, the data itself, if it's limited, may give you a limited perspective. Um, so we say that it's associative and not causative. And we also say that the data sets can actually have um, uh, a bias within them. If, uh, uh, so the associative part, um, we showed a slide yesterday that showed that there's a very nice correlation with the number of movies that um, an actor had been in, Cage, Nicholas Cage had been in, and the number of deaths by drowning, I think it was. Um, they, they, <laughs> over a decade, it's exactly the same pattern. You'd think the two are causational, but they're actually have two things that happen at the same time that have nothing to do with each other. So that's the kind of pattern you will see using artificial intelligence in large data, and you have to be very cognizant that because you see a pattern, it's not necessarily a, a causation. One does not cause the other. Um, on the other hand, where it's been the classic example of how it's been used, how, how amazing it can, be, it can be if contextualized correctly, was a famous story about um, Walmart that realized that certain buying patterns in what young women's behavior were correlated with pregnancy. If they stopped buying certain things, primarily makeup, they um, there's a perceived uh, absorption of toxins through the skin. Um, uh, there's a very high chance that someone was pregnant. And so what they did is they changed their marketing. They started sending them marketing for diapers and that kind of thing. And there's a story of this family that started receiving these diaper advertisements from Walmart. And the father called back and said, you can't, you know, my daughter's not pregnant. And then, of course, she was pregnant. So the problem with the that's the that's where you can see now in healthcare what you what we're looking for is identifying patterns that are related with disease. So we get into predictive analytics. So you asked another question though: artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning. So artificial intelligence is just the basic idea of us uh, taking large data sets, putting through a computer software program, and looking for patterns. Machine learning is the optimization of that process, whereby. Um, if you identify a large enough data set, you can train a software algorithm to recognize a very specific pattern. So you can train it to learn uh, what to find, um, how, what a, in this case, we, the example I gave yesterday was a flower. And if you know the petals are a certain length and, and the, the color of, this, of, the, of the leaf, of the petals a certain color, and then those two features define the type of flower that flower is, if you've shown, say, 200 images of a flower and you've told the computer what to look for, 
once you show the 201st image and it doesn't know what it is, it will recognize that as that flower. The challenge with machine learning is that you have to know what to look for. You have to be able to tell the software what to look for, and that is where the genius of some of these amazing um, uh, coders is, is identifying the correct pattern of questions to ask and features to look for in the, in the data set. So they say innovation is firstly spurred by ambition, but it was actually Matthew Said in one of his recent books that talks about recombinant innovation, which is where we combine ideas and we're not really reinventing. And you mentioned that yesterday, it's all about adaptation, it's not reinventing. Right. Um, with regards to innovation in the digital tech space, where do you think pediatric orthopedics as a subspecialty is gonna be affected the most? I know you spoke yesterday a lot about sensors and wearable technologies, but give me some other examples of where you feel it will be used. You know, uh, one of the, th yeah, so the first thing you said is very, very true. Um, innovation is seldom de novo innovation. It's more like an additive. You stand on the shoulder of giants and then looking one little bit further and some will then stand on your shoulders and look beyond that. So we shouldn't have the hubris to think that we're really that clever. Most of the time we're taking from ideas that, that we have come around us and then uh, put them together and to maybe potentially package them differently. And that is correctly uh, a good way to, to, to phrase a question about pediatric orthopedics. What is already out there that we can adapt uh, to orthopedics and then within orthopedics, any one specialty within that, and in your case, pediatric orthopedics, and the question that I have to ask you is that what is the pain point? So I think telehealth would be a huge opportunity for, for pediatric orthopedics. You have a lot of very anxious mothers who don't really know or may have been told a million times something, but they just want to make sure that their kid's fine. And taking billing and all those kinds of things aside, what's the right thing? Well, a televisit to review a, um, a wound, to review a cast, to review a, uh, uh, a specific gait pattern um, remotely uh, would be of extraordinary help to the patient's family. You know, moving kids around town isn't easy for anyone. Taking them out of school if they're older is, is also a challenge. So providing those kinds of services, those can be, those can be provided with synchronous tel classic telehealth, but as we mentioned yes yesterday, there's also opportunities to create uh, specific chatbots that understand natural language. Uh, so, uh, so just reframe that for a second. So one of the challenges of the original uh, sort of back and forth Q&A type, question and answer type uh, formats was that you had to ask a question in a very specific way or choose from a pull down menu. And if the question you're trying to ask it didn't reflect what was in the boxes, then of course people pick up the phone and move away from it. Natural language processing says that the software in a chatbot, for example, can understand the ver the, that somebody says, I have a headache, my head hurts, I have pain behind my eyeball, there's something wrong between my ears. All that understands it as a headache. And so it enables you to have a conversation which is pretty natural. Um, and behind it is a data set against which the computer can find the answer, um, which is also being read as natural language. So even if the correct exact phrasing isn't already in the documents that you've provided the software, um, it'll know what the meaning was of that text and be figure out that that is basically the answer to give to the patient. So we've seen somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 80 percent of the questions coming into the office basically essentially be addressed through these technologies. Um, 
so the manager of the patient at home, I think, is going to be a big one. What about the use of uh, sensors in uh, monitoring patients' recovery, um, sort of physiotherapy following fracture or cast mobilization, and using that to help predict what their problems may be? Right. Because it's very difficult in the pediatric community to get true proms because it's usually done by the parents. But would there be ways that we could almost use sensor technology to get proms directly from a pediatric population? Um, the answer is yes, but there's a ton of work to do. As I tried to uh, speak yesterday about my research is that the problem with sensors isn't so much that they don't sense, they sense fine. We just don't know what variables are going to be connected with what prom how long we have to connect that data for, how accurate it has to be, over what time frame it has to be collected to show a trend line that's meaningful. And we don't have normative data sets against which to compare the data you're getting from the patient with what is the normal. Um, these are going to be challenges that perhaps you will solve or your team in London uh, help us solve because we do have to start just simply looking at the data, just getting patients to wear sensors. And maybe it turns out that a motion sensor isn't the optimal one. Maybe we need a geotag, which is more sensitive to look distance traveled as opposed to the actual motion of the patient. I, I, we, j we just don't know right now. Obviously, the opportunity is massive. Obviously, it's up to us to uh, figure out what works and what doesn't. It's also very important not to over listen to the hype coming out of Silicon Valley and similar technology companies that tell you we're going to be able to sense everything and we'll tell you all this information when they don't even know what they're looking for. So yes, we can sense stuff. It's up to the pediatric orthopedic community to sort out what signals are useful and which are not for what specific diagnosis and it's not going to be one sensor for the um, both bones forearm fracture uh, that's also going to give you a good um, data point on the proximal humerus fracture, for example. I suspect that they will actually require different technologies or different applications of the same technology. But sure, do I see a sensor being put in a cast? Do they have anything from checking for water, uh, perspiration, uh, looseness of the cast, so that if it's loose and it's moving too much, it'll let you know. You know as the swelling goes down, do you have to change the cast? Well, actually, no, your data set's pretty solid, you don't have to change it. Those are the kinds of things that could very quickly become standard of care if somebody figured out how to, how to make them. Yeah, it's a very exciting area, and obviously there will be a huge amount of development in probably in, in the next decade. Um, going on to sort of augmented and virtual reality yes. with specifics to training young surgeons, because yes. that's probably where it's going to have another huge benefit. Yes. And I was very interested to hear yesterday that it's actually a pediatric orthopedic surgeon from UCLA who is has led a charge and has has a company that has <laughs> investigated into this. Tell me a bit about that and where you feel that will help in the future education of uh, surgeons. Yeah. So the company you're referring to is also VR. OSOVR.com. Uh, Justin Barad, MD, is the chief, is the CEO of that company, and they arguably have the best virtual reality platform out there right now. Um, <coughs> they have been successfully uh, shown. In fact, we just did a quick study at UCSF as well, and <coughs> they've been able to model uh, many surgical procedures such that a trainee could go and do a specific procedure a number of times prior to going to the theater and having the opportunity to do it themselves. What they've shown 
very successfully. They've done some studies looking at patients doing the virtual reality testing or experience versus reviewing the documentation sent in by the company for a tibial nail and the residents were given as much time as they wanted to study and prepare and the speed and accuracy and precision of the residents who had done the virtual experience way, way out did perform those that studied on paper. There's just nothing quite the same as doing. Um, we've done the same for total knee replacements and <clears throat> as we go further down the road with this, it's not unreasonable to think that rather than doing the standardized fracture that was built into the software platform, that Justin, his team will be able to insert rather than a random fracture, the fracture you are going to fix. So you actually have a chance to do the same exact procedure going forward. Pelvic osteotomies, for sure, is something that would be much, much easier to train in a virtual model than even on a cadaver model. Um, and already, in certain countries in Europe, it has been used as a um, means by which to um, license uh, nurses to prove that they can do certain things, whether central lines or catheter placements. Uh, if they can show they can do it virtually, they don't have to go and be recertified. Currently, in the United States anyway, most of this recertification is done by a nurse watching another nurse doing it, which is very expensive. We can do this virtually and uh, teach them. Another nice things about virtual reality is that you can program into the software complications so that as you're nailing something, you can program it to fracture if you don't get the, the entry point just right. And that's a great experience because <laughs> you could ah, that was not a good idea, as opposed to letting the software just you know, override and you see and not do it right. Um, with catheterizations, you can you can you can uh, uh, you can call the software can basically start bleeding, so you can't see anymore and, until you figure out how to, how to get to the bleeder. You, you don't you don't actually see it. It's it's quite powerful. Yeah, and we're going to be speaking to uh, Kartik Logachetti, who's a friend of mine who's yes. done a PhD in this topic and uh, has published on it recently. So he's also going to be a guest on the podcast, oh, talking about this as well. I look forward to hearing it. Moving towards uh, patients and connecting families with rare diseases. Yeah, oh yes. Because in pediatrics, we have a lot of patients in neuromuscular clinics. There are they tend to gravitate towards tertiary or quaternary type hospitals, but there are very few families in the world with that specific condition. How do you think uh, future digital technologies are going to help with managing those patients, sort of connecting together, and maybe even helping drive research as their own little mini subgroups? So I'm sure you're, you're referring to Patients Like Me, which was um, a platform that actually was on the first uh, social networks to address this specific topic. And the way they were structured was specifically around disease types, and they connected uh, usually parents of children with rare diseases who then became amazingly powerful uh, forces of change. Not only did they, uh, were they successful at creating social support networks simply to help parents get through these these uh, difficult challenges, but also showing, you know, um, creating lists of, uh, of hospitals that have specific programs, specific uh, uh, research projects they could enroll in, um, whether it's new drug therapies or new treatment therapies uh, that would support each other relative to travel and stay with me if you're coming to town because, you know, you're going to go see them. It was it's super powerful. They did very well with very rare, well, with moderately rare diseases where they didn't do quite so well, um, or at least they didn't tend to go into was the more chronic diseases, the most standardized, like 
degenerative arthritis, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but it was one of the more successful social uh, experiments of the last decade using technology. Now, you're founder and chair of uh, the Digital Orthopedic Conference. Yes. Uh, tell me a bit about that, when your next meeting is. In fact, I was drawn towards that podcast when I wanted to start my own, actually Google Orthopedics onto Spotify, and that was one that came up. So thank you, because it was your podcast that sort of led me to believe there would be an audience for this. Yeah, great. Digital Orthopedics Conference rose out of uh, a need that I saw. I, I, uh, I, I'm fortunate to belong to a number of orthopedic societies. I got a chance to go speak about orthopedic topics and I'd be all over the planet uh, going to events with a thousand docs and nobody talk about digital health. And I go to a digital health conference and now there's actually 10,000 people there, all of whom are trying to disrupt the world of orthopedics and primary care and medicine in general. And like, why is there no doctors here? The only doctors who were there start, were starting their own companies. And like, first of all, you're all trying to solve the same problem and you both should be in the same room and sharing this, your perspectives on it, very, very different mindsets. And so we created this event designed for those who are trying to lead change in healthcare to be able to meet the folks from Silicon Valley, to the venture capitalists, the insurers, never talk to them, uh, to healthcare system administrators, put them all in a room and say, okay guys, let's talk about some of the challenges we're all facing and let's share our common goals and uh, let's learn from each other. And, the, and uh, we run it just before the JP Morgan conference, which is in San Francisco, which is sort of the key conference of the year. Uh, in, in digital health and, and biotech. And uh, as a result, so many world leaders are there. And uh, fortunately, through connections or friends, we were able to invite them in, and we've had some extraordinary speakers come and share with us their vision. And then we have, we invite a bunch of startups to come in, who have, well, we select a bunch of startups who have been very successful already in the space to tell us what their journey was like. And so that's a, uh, um, that's a, a, a case study approach and we have plenty of time for connections to happen between people. We seed the conversation through the lectures and then we enable the networking to happen behind the, the, the scenes and we're very proud of the amount of uh, business that's come out of it. A lot of startups have hooked up with healthcare systems to help um, drive the change forward. Our goal with that is really to help drive the adoption of digital health tools in the subspecialties of musculoskeletal care. That's fantastic. And I'll put uh, more details about the next one, which is in January 2021, yes. in the show notes. I'll put a link to your podcast. Right. I hope to attend one day as well. But thank oh, you okay. so much, Dr. Vini. And we could talk for hours on all the potential things. And again, I'll put a, a, cop a link to the video that of your presentation from yesterday wonderful, wonderful. for those interested. But thank you for your time. I look forward to meeting you again. Dude, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you.